Roots 100.1 FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Rotary Matters. Now, my name is Ian Stewart and it's really, really good to be with you on this beautiful, sunny uh, summer's day. Now, the idea of our programme is to put the spotlight onto some of the many worthy the courses, projects and the people who make up Rotary. So today we're going to be meeting a brilliant young Australian researcher whose work is dedicated to reducing the incidence of people in the Pacific suffering TB, that's tuberculosis, and leprosy. Diseases we've all heard about, but which can be reduced if there is a will and funds to assist. Sadly, this isn't always the case, and with climate change impacting the way of life, particularly where sea levels are rising, which they are in some Pacific islands, it's harder and more urgent than ever. Now, Michaela Coleman, with the uh, assistance of Rotary, did a Master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she tells us where her research has taken her. And I spoke to her a few days ago on Zoom. So today on Rotary Matters, it's a great pleasure to have with us Michaela Coleman. Now, Michaela is a Rotary Global Scholar for the 2022-2023 year. She's got a fascinating story about some work that she has been doing. It's got a very strong Rotary connection. But uh, firstly, Michaela, um, I'm talking to you now. You're up in the Blue Mountains. What was it that you initially studied and where did you do that? Initially, before I uh, was a Rotary scholar, I studied science and law, a combined degree at the University of Sydney. And then I did my PhD in tuberculosis. And so what was it that attracted you to the idea of researching tuberculosis and also leprosy? Well, it really started when I was 16. I think like most people, I thought that tuberculosis had been eliminated. Same with leprosy. And I was at a a talk and the speaker was reflecting on the tuberculosis burden in his country, which was uh, Sudan in Africa. And at the time, it was just one country. Right. And he really called out to the audience the need for people to work in this space. And I was shatteringly convicted. I felt like he was speaking just to me. And the more and he reflected on the fact that the disease is curable, it's treatable, it's preventable, and it's still the number one infectious disease killer. About 4,000 people die every day from tuberculosis. And leprosy in the world, it's going down. But in the Pacific, in many countries, it's going up, just like TB. So there is this sense of it it was a limit. We call it elimination in Australia and places like the UK and the US. But we stopped there. We said, well, we're covered and forgot that we have a responsibility to the rest of the world. We have solutions. Um, we have resources and money. Uh, but it wasn't until, I, I guess, until uh, these infectious diseases really started getting worse uh, in the 2000s because of you know the pressures of climate change. We've all experienced this with COVID that we kind of realized that diseases don't respect borders but that there is also, if you have an ability to cure a disease, you have the responsibility to do it. And I really felt that. I felt that it was um, a real opportunity to 
like a low-hanging fruit to care for people and okay so uh, Michaela just for the benefit of those who are less familiar with these conditions um, what are the symptoms of tuberculosis and and also of leprosy yes so they're both a very sneaky disease. They're actually related. We'd call them cousins in the uh, in the microbiology world. They're both what you'd call mycobacteria. Uh, and these diseases are incredibly well, uh, good, they're good predators of humans. They know how to fly under the radar. So for tuberculosis, some of the symptoms are coughing, a cough that just won't break, right. which many diseases have night sweats, there might be loss of weight. Um, but essentially what is happening is the bug, the, the bacteria is in the lungs and it's causing, it's basically drilling holes in the lungs. So it's it's very, it's, it's respiratory predominantly for, uh, for adults. And then leprosy is even more sneaky because how do you feel that something's wrong with your skin when your sense of touch is being destroyed so that's what it's happening so the bacteria in leprosy is hiding in the uh in the in the nerves it's destroying the nerves it's in the nose as well and it's really causing patches on the skin and then it might cause loss of strength maybe the foot might drop or the arm and then eventually it leads to deformities such as uh loss of fingers the nose and face might kind of, you might lose eyebrows, your nose scrunches up, that kind of thing. So it's very, both of these are very isolating diseases, but I guess you could say that leprosy is particularly um, obvious and therefore most isolating. And are they found in both children and adults or is it just for adults? No, absolutely. They're in both children and adults. TB in particular is most lethal in infants. So under the age of two, uh, most children who get TB under the, who are infected under the age of two can go on to disease if they're not treated. And there's very high rates of, of mortality, unfortunately. Okay, so these two conditions um, caught your attention. You went to the studying to study at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. How did you choose that as your um, place of study? And how, how come you got there? <laughs> well, I went to study a Masters of Public Health at in London at this school because it is globally renowned as the best education in the world um, for public health, but also because it has a legacy um, of including people from countries who are affected by TD and leprosy. So not only would I have the opportunity to work with experts from the UK and elsewhere, but also experts from countries that were affected by the disease who have a really powerful perspective and insight. And I wanted to bring the skills that I could gain there back to apply to the challenges in the Pacific. And did Rotary help in any way with any of this? Oh, did they ever? Well, I I hadn't I didn't know much about Rotary, yeah. but a professor that I worked with got a call one day from a rotor from a Rotary club in I think it was King's Cross, and they said, "We've heard about your tuberculosis work. How can we help?" And I remember sitting with my with this professor and thinking, "Who are these people? <laughs> who who are these people that care?" And he told me the history of Rotary's involvement with polio 
and how I guess the eradic the steps towards eradication could be largely attributed to Rotary and I was so impressed and interested and then when I knew that I needed to get the skills from public health that there was more that I needed to be effective in changing the tuberculosis and leprosy crisis in the Pacific I thought of Rotary I, I was looking for funding I didn't have any money I'd been a student forever during my PhD and so I, I started googling who was who was providing funding and I typed in Rotary I said Rotary Global Health Scholarship and it came up they wanted a there was a scholar an opportunity for a scholar a young person to study global health overseas and I thought this looks this looks made for me so I got in touch um, with a couple of Rotary clubs in the Sydney area, so the Rotary Club of the Inner West um, and Chatswood and Roseville and Taramara. And just the support and the, you know, sometimes when you're fighting for something that is hard to do you and that isolates people that suffer from the disease, you yourself can feel isolated or maybe that there aren't that many people interested. And experience with Rotary, the amount of people that have believed in me and have believed and cared about this and felt responsibility for the people suffering from this disease has been inspiring and comforting, heartening. So, yes, and I was selected to study um, in the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and already it's borne a lot of fruit in the work that I've been able to do in the Pacific since, since getting back. Well, we'll come to that in a moment. Today, we're talking with Michaela Coleman. She's a Rotary Global Scholar who's undertaking important research into the spread of TB and leprosy in the Pacific Islands. And we're going to find out in a moment what is happening on the island of Kiribati um, with 120,000 people and its population. Your, your um, research took you to Kiribati. Um, just for the benefit of our listeners, where is Kiribati geographically? <laughs> Okay, so Kiribati, if you can imagine the world map, there is the international dateline and there's a hook in the international dateline. It cuts straight through the centre of the Pacific. That hook is so that all of Kiribati can sit in the same time zone. So it's 22 atolls and one raised coral island. And 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 what's the population roughly of Kiribati? It's about 120,000 people and 65,000 of them live on a small stretch of land about 13 kilometres squared. So the study that you did there has got an intriguing acronym. Can you spell spell that out for us, please, Michaela? Yeah, so uh, it's the PEARL study. It's led by Professor Ben Murray at the University of Sydney and in Kiribati by Dr. Jeremy Hill. And PEARL is a very long acronym. It stands for Pathway to the Elimination of Antibiotic Resistant and Latent Tuberculosis, and then in brackets, and also leprosy in the Pacific. Okay. Antibiotic resistant. Does that mean, Mm. (laughs) can you just explain that for us? Yes, well, uh, this this kind of goes to how it's funded by the Australian government, our our medical research council, and it 
goes back to a period of time when the country was very interested in diseases that could spread. And so it was very uh, worried about border protection. Right. And antibiotic resistant diseases are obviously ones that are of great concern to our government and, and most governments. So the, the, the thing is that Papua New Guinea, which is connected to Australia through a series of islands and, and rite of passage, has the highest multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis burden in the world. And part of the reason some people believe that that ha- happened was because aid was given, but it was insufficient aid. Treatment courses weren't followed up, that kind of thing. So, so there is a sense that Australia maybe has some responsibility in that area. And in the Pacific, while drug resistance for tuberculosis is not that high, it's got all of the perfect, it's, it's a perfect melting pot for, for drug resistant, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis to emerge because you've got really high numbers. You've got a standard of care that won't, that can't always follow up to make sure antibiotics are taken appropriately. It's, it's kind of like a perfect storm. And so part of the, the study was to waylay the storm, curtail the storm right. um, from eating. Okay. So in addition to the Pearl project, you said about doing some, some interviews on other Pacific islands as well. Um, what, what were the main findings of uh, those interviews, please, um, Michaela? Yes, well, to, to just uh, give a bit of background on Pearl and how the interviews came about, yes. Pearl is going through the most populated island in Kiribati. It's going door to door, screening everyone from the age of three or and older for tuberculosis and leprosy and then giving them treatment and not just treatment to, if they have disease but to prevent disease. So that's what is happening. And it's towards the elimination of these diseases in the Pacific. But we know these strategies work. There was was, um, some recent study in Vietnam by Australian Australian researchers who found that if you do this, if you go through the community and you screen everyone four times over four years, you can halve the rates of tuberculosis and leprosy, which saves a lot of lives and a lot of money for the health system. But it hasn't really been taken up in the Pacific. So we were doing this study and we wanted to know why it hadn't been taken up. And funders and researchers will always say, all the politicians mm-hmm. don't want it. It's there's no political will, and of course the politicians say hello. There's no money. We can't do it. Right. So there's that tension of, well, which is it? What's going on there? And is part of my master's study in London. We had the opportunity to craft our own project, and I wanted to interrogate that question: Why was TB and leprosy so high? an acknowledged burden in many countries in the Pacific, but the strategies that there's good evidence to suggest work hadn't been implemented aggressively. But the people so, wanted, the people wanted, wanted it. Yes, yes. Well, the um, the there are plans that the government puts together for tuberculosis and all of the plans in all of the countries with high tuberculosis burden, there's about eight of them that have very high rates uh, had said that they wanted to do screening throughout the community. 
so so there's clearly there's clearly this desire at a political level in every community um that pearl has entered have have been they're eager for healthcare. So in practical, but, in practical terms, what happens is, is that a team of um, medics or paramedics tour around yeah. every village, every household? Exactly. It's a team of local people uh, speaking in local language yes. who are uh, trained at the moment. It's about 20 people and that's growing. That team is growing. And they're going to every village knocking on all the doors and inviting them for chest X-ray screening, uh, PCR diagnostic, like gold standard mm-hmm. testing, um, mm-hmm. Australia class treatment. Um, and the overwhelming experience has been that people attend uh, these these clinics and that we are unfortunately find very, finding very high rates of tuberculosis and leprosy for TB, almost double what is currently reported um, at a global level, but we are working in the most, you know, populated area where you'd expect there to be the highest rates in the country. So, so that's... Of all the countries you've covered, which ones or which one has um, been the most successful in terms of uh, the prevention through mm. its community uh, program? Yeah, I can't say that. So we haven't covered an entire country. The study is still ongoing. Okay. Um, but there have been there have been I, I guess the, the the studies that the study that I did with interviewing people in the Pacific sought to kind of ask what would work best for the for Pacific people according to what they want, not what we as kind of Australian researchers think they would want. Yeah. So I basically interviewed uh, people, senior people from the ministries of health in six different Pacific Island countries that have very high tuberculosis burden. And I asked them, what are you, what, th- what works in your country? What are your priorities? Because our priority is clearly tuberculosis. But if we're not listening to what your people want, then we're not serving them very well are we so i i was asking questions like this so that's uh, michaela kelman and there'll be more to come from her in a few moments okay let's return now to our main story it concerns the spread of tb and leprosy in the pacific islands why it happens and what could be done to arrest it Uh, politicians are part of the story but so too are potential donors and we now rejoin the conversation I had uh, yesterday with the Rotary Global Scholar, Michaela Coleman. And then I also spoke with the major tuberculosis and health donors in the Pacific. So that includes, well, it, it, it includes countries who, are, who give funding to the Pacific. So some of the major donors in our area, like the US or Australia, Japan, um, people like that, New Zealand. And then also international funding agencies. And the classic ones would be the UN or the WHO, as an example. So these are the people I spoke to. And then trying to say, okay, are funders and countries agreeing? And what is stopping the work being done? And it was it was some fascinating findings. So what was stopping the work being done was politicians saying there's no money and donors saying there's no political will or not enough political will. Well, what I found was that Political will 
is a very interesting term because it assumes that you have total ability to make any choice you want. But when you're in the Pacific and you're in an island country, you have limited resources, limited economy, and climate change means that your hospital laboratories are washing out in a king tide and maybe the island that that provides most of your crop has just been inundated with water and all of the young people have left and you're struggling to feed your communities and so relying on two-minute noodles and tin food, which just completely contributes to these skyrocketing rates of diabetes and non-communicable diseases in these communities, you can you can look at you can't just say we care only about TB or we care only about leprosy in this one island. You have to say these are all interconnected. These if 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 the if the rising tides means that our TB clinics are washed out, then climate change is impacting TB. And if the if people have diabetes and tuberculosis at the same time, it means that tuberculosis is far more aggressive in that person. So, so what we learned was that if you care about a disease, you may not make so much of a difference as if you care about people who have the disease and provide for needs just beyond one disease. So that's why the Pearl study integrated both TB and leprosy. And we're looking at ways currently to integrate many more uh, diseases into that to try and give the most bang for our buck and to serve the community in the way that they want to be served. So um, climate change, as you say, sea levels are rising. Mm. Some of the facilities are being washed out. But this isn't likely to change, is it, Michaela? Um, we're not seeing the sea level dropping anywhere, are we? Uh, abs- no, it's not. And unfortunately, 800 million people globally live within 10 metres of sea level. 800 million, that includes Sydney <laughs> and many coastal populous cities. So we are seeing rising sea levels, but it's not even just that. I spoke to um, someone that I interviewed who said that when he was in uh, Tonga, there was there was an earthquake, so yeah. they went high ground, but the highest ground is ten meters above sea level. So there there's a limit to how much countries can prepare for natural disasters that are getting worse, that are degrading the health in- infrastructure, and just making everything far more costly, hard to follow up on people, and hard to teach them about how to eat good foods for your health because there are very few good foods for your health when your crop is being destroyed. Well, Michaela, congratulations to you for your initiative in uh, all this work that you're doing and and the the very high importance of it all. As you said, 4,000 people a day are dying somewhere in the world from TV. Anything we Mm. can do to arrest that has got to be an advantage. But it seems to me that uh, what you're doing is right up to date entirely current and uh, we're hearing about it every day particularly the impact of of climate change is there anything that australia as a country could be doing or should be doing to assist our brothers in the pacific 
Yes, I think something that I really have been convicted by working in the Pacific is that these are Indigenous populations who are living in a really brave and beautiful way. And so I think being I think just giving due credit to these to these countries, listening to them, and more and more, Australian funders are interested in hearing what countries what want, what countries want to say. And I guess as Australians, that can mean uh, that can be as simple as knowing that in Australia we have amazing health systems. We're more than capable of. <laughs> curing tuberculosis and leprosy so things like not being worried if you hear about people visiting Australia who have TB because we are privileged to be able to treat cure that disease it's not something to be afraid of it is treatable and curable and it's something that we can make a difference on if we are used our Power as wealthy people, we have, uh, you know, political power. We have opportunities to donate to different uh, tuberculosis advocacy bodies and research initiatives. There's so much that can be done, uh, but awareness and I guess grace for the fact that we are fortunate um, and we have the ability and therefore the responsibility to care for our neighbours. Michaela, on behalf of our listeners and Rotary more broadly, again, my personal congratulations to you for this wonderful work that you're doing. And what's the next step for Michaela Kelman? Where do you go from here? Yes, so I'm look. I'm at the moment still working in the Pacific, implementing a lot of the learnings that I had from my masters. I'm currently working on grants to expand the work that I've been doing, and to uh, grow my network beyond the Pacific region. Because if and if being in London had taught me anything, it's that very few people internationally in influential global bodies understand that working in the Pacific is not the same as working in Asia or Africa yeah. or any of other areas with high TB burden. So it's that raising awareness which attracts funding and the ability for the for the global community to listen uh, to, to people who are at the coalface of climate change and are experiencing today what many coastal countries will be experiencing in 50 years' time. So the way we treat these islands will be a, a template for how we treat people in, in, in years to come. So let's do a good job at it. Let's do that. Let's do that. And with you at the helm of all of this, I'm sure we will succeed. Michaela Coleman, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing the story and um, uh, wishing you every success. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm grateful to you for listening.